Welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by Celebrity Speakers New Zealand. Now, they are Aotearoa's foremost professional speakers and entertainment agency and have been for the last 30 years. Today, my guest is Abbas Nazari, and he is one of Celebrity Speakers' top keynote speakers. So if you're interested in having him at your next event, then please head to celebrityspeakers.co.nz and inquire with the friendly team. Until then, enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with refugee turned scholar and author Abbas Nazari. Abbas Nazari, mate, thank you so much for joining me. Awesome, Maddie. Thanks for having me. Look, I've I've spent the last sort of couple of weeks researching you, and um, look, it's it's probably pretty obvious, but you have um, an incredible story. You've, in fact, you've written a book about it, um, and we'll get to there later. But um, there's there's probably going to be people listening that 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 don't even know your story and sort of what what's happening. So, I, I guess I'd like to start there, and, and maybe we start, um, you know, even with your childhood, because um, you know you are a Kiwi, you sound like a Kiwi, but you weren't born in New Zealand. Yeah, that's right, man. Uh, I was born in a little village uh, high up in the mountains of uh, central Afghanistan. And our little village, about three and a half, four thousand people, uh, situated, I think, 2,000 metres above sea level, or right there in the mountains, was uh, home for me and my family and my community for, for multiple generations. Um, in the book, I talk about, you know, my childhood growing up, uh, you know, swimming in the little creek that ran through and climbing the mountains. And it's, it's a beautiful, you know, idyllic uh, childhood that a lot of folks uh, not familiar with Afghanistan probably can't picture in their minds at all. And, and so, and so you, you grew up in Afghanistan and then um, I've seen some photos that you've, you've, you've shared, um, you know, through, again, the research I've done the last couple of weeks and, and you're 100% right. Uh, the, 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 the photos that you share, you know, don't align with, I guess, probably what you'd consider a, 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 what most people just by, you know, through, you know, media and through, you know, a, a probably a maybe slightly limited insight into Afghanistan would expect. Yeah, you know, I, I've been doing a few speaking gigs and going on this book tour around New Zealand and the imagery that I try to give to people is if you think of central Otago, the the climate, the geography, the topography, even the sense of community that exists in central Otago, you know, one of my favourite parts in New Zealand. That's exactly what it was like growing up there, you know, the the snow-capped mountains, the alpine lakes and rivers, the beautiful valleys, all of that is is the little village that we grew up in. That was exactly the kind of scenery that I grew up in. And you're right, you know, a lot of folks uh, unfamiliar with Afghanistan uh, think of of plains and deserts, and that's about it. And while that's true for some parts of Afghanistan, the vast majority is this beautiful kind of the whole country. I think of it as one giant national park. That's what it looks like to me in my mind. And so we grew up there. And we lived there and my family had lived there for multiple generations. Grew up there. I mean, I was born in the mid-90s, uh, right there in the middle of the Afghan Civil War, um, which, you know, happened after the, the Soviets invaded and then left in 1989. Uh, so that was kind of my childhood. Thankfully, all the violence, all the conflict that was taking place in the country was limited to 
the main cities. And our little village, which was quite far away from Kabul and the other major cities, we were thankfully sheltered uh, from the violence. But it didn't take long for that conflict to, to reach us and, and affect our daily lives. And so, you know, what happened from there? And obviously, you know, to, it's not a spoiler alert, but you, you ended up leaving Afghanistan. And and um, what what sort of stemmed that? I mean, what was the – do you remember much about needing to leave and why you had to leave? Yeah, throughout my childhood, we were always aware that the, the country was in conflict. Uh, we weren't – we didn't see it in the early years. We didn't see it on a day-to-day basis, but we always kind of heard news of, of war and conflict happening far away. Where it affected our lives immediately was in the mid-90s, this new force, this new power known as the Taliban came into the country. Uh, The Taliban, the word Talib is is Arabic for students, uh, students of what? Students of the book, uh, students of the Quran, this militant uh, uh, Islamic movement that, that came over into Afghanistan, mostly from across the borders. And um, the Taliban came over and took Afghanistan and within 18 months, they controlled 90% of the country. And overnight, overnight, society changed for us. We we lived in a new country with a new flag and a new leadership and and new societal norms on a day-to-day basis. You know, things like um, the all-covering female burqa, which is something that became synonymous with Afghanistan at the time, uh, that was as foreign to us as it was to many in the West because we hadn't seen that before. That wasn't part of our history or our culture. That was imposed. You know, and overnight we had the imposition of this medieval barbaric, uh, you know, crime and, and punishment system. They called it law, but it's far from it. You know, things like uh, for halftime entertainment, having uh, people who, who were, you know, accused of adultery or whatever, uh, being uh, stoned, uh, you know, at the local football, local cricket stadium, uh, you know, having uh, thieves who had had to have their arms amputated for for stealing a loaf of bread. It was, and also, you know, women not being allowed to leave their homes without a male accomplice. It was this overnight, you know, black and white change when the Taliban took over. And while again, most of it was limited to the cities. Within a few weeks and months, that then started to influence us and spread out into the villages. And that's when we kind of knew that, you know, life for us had changed and, and it, you know, it'll never go back to the way things were. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible even just to listen to is, is, um, is, is mind-boggling. I mean, um, you know, obviously you were quite young then. I think you were sort of maybe only seven years old. Um, so life's changed, you know, very dramatically, um, very quickly. Do you understand or do you know much about the way your parents were thinking and then, and then you know, when the decision eventually came that, that they decided that they, they wanted, you know, your family to leave? Yeah, we... we our little village was, I'll give you the two-minute rundown on Afghan history just to make sense of it all. Um, Afghanistan is like a patchwork quilt of multiple different cultures and languages and ethnic groups all living together. Just by sheer fortune or misfortune of its geography, it's been right there at the center of Asia, the Middle East, uh, South Asia, Russia to the north, and it's always seen this movement of people. Uh, with that, there's obviously added beautiful benefits like a very deep 
ancient and rich cultural heritage of food and literature and cuisine and all the things that we love about a good culture. But then also when you've got so many different groups of people vying for control and supremacy of a place, it's always led to conflict as well. And so Afghanistan, made up of multiple different ethnic groups, um, has sadly uh, always known conflict. It's almost embedded into its, its, its national DNA. One of those groups that has often been, I guess, at the, at the sharper end of the stick is the Hazara, which is my people. You know, we have Central Asian genetics. We look different. We're more Asiatic in appearance. We speak a different language. We speak Dari, which is a dialect of Farsi. Uh, we worship differently. You know, we're Shia Muslims compared to the majority Sunni sect. So we look, speak, and worship differently, and we, we, we populate a, a particular area of Afghanistan. And so because of that, the Hazara has always been, the Hazara people have always kind of felt the sharp end of the stick. And, and every time a new power has come into the country, it's the Hazara that have felt the differences most acutely. And so when the Taliban took over and their view was to make, you know, I, I say jokingly, but, you know, there's some seriousness, their view was to make Islam great again. There was no room for an ethnic religious minority in Afghanistan. They'd never seen Hazara as true Afghans. And so immediately they went about essentially evicting uh, people out of their homes and out of their farmlands and out of the lands that they've always known and saying, you're not a true Afghan, you don't belong here, you know, you've got a week to pack up and leave. And so we knew when the Taliban took over and we started to see the kind of government, I guess, that they wanted to establish, we knew that the, we would be the first to, to feel that. And so my parents were very aware of that. And, and so were the other villagers. Overnight, over many months as well, we started to see the number of people in our village decrease. We started to see houses boarded up. We started to see the number of my classmates at school decrease as, as families kind of fled in the middle of the night. They became refugees, right? They, they went to the nearest city and from there they tried to cross the border into neighboring countries. And so by 2001, our family was probably one of the last families remaining in our little village uh, because we didn't want to leave. You know, we had a beautiful lifestyle. We had a farm. My dad was a truck driver. Mom took care of us kids. We didn't want to leave that life. But uh, here was a, a force uh, that was, uh, you know, uh, making us, uh, that was forcing us to make a decision. And so, um, yeah, that's a, it's a, um, a beautifully articulate way to, way to put it. And essentially, it, it almost wasn't a, wasn't a choice, is kind of what you're saying, is that, that it was a, it was a, um, you decided you had to go, and then, um, you know, once your family does decide that, right, we're going to leave. Like, wh like, what's the process of that? I know it might sound trivial, but you know, like for most people listening, that's not going to be something that everyone's ever considered before. Like, you know, I guess you take what you can like, fit in a vehicle, or you can carry, or how does it sort of work? Yeah, that's right. I think many listeners of this podcast will probably never have to contemplate the decision of what do we do and we literally have to up and leave, right? What do you even pack? Where does that begin? And so um, that was a decision that we had to face. And by the way, throughout this conversation, I'll use the word decision and choice interchangeably almost as if they're appropriate, but I found that they're entirely inappropriate because the entire situation is forced on you, right? You have something that's completely out of your control, which was in my case, the Taliban, uh, coming in and saying, 
you know, a massive disruption in your life and a, you know, a massive event completely outside your control. And now all you can do is focus on the things within your control. And so my dad just said, look, we have to leave. He just dropped the news on us one night over dinner and he said, tonight's, uh, tomorrow is, tomorrow is the day. You know, go to school, say goodbye to your teachers. By the time you come back, there'll be a truck. One of my truck driver buddies will be here. We'll, we'll jump into the back of his truck. And, um, you know, I've got a way out of this country, you know, I've, I've planned the next steps ahead to get us out of the country and, and over the border into Pakistan. And so that was, it was, I make it sound trivial, but that was as easy as it was, you know, the next day I went to school, said goodbye to our teachers, came home and mum and dad had packed all of our essential life belongings into two duffel bags. Uh, he'd boarded up the doors across our house and boarded up the windows. And uh, true enough, a couple of hours later that afternoon, uh, you know, a truck, truck pulled up and we climbed into the back of this truck, you know, hiding under boxes and tarpaulins and, and our little village, you know, kind of disappeared behind us in a, in a cloud of dust as, as this truck um, took us out of there. And it's this, when I think back on that, it almost seems like another world. Uh, but that's, it's, Everything that we'd known was all up in the air. We just boarded up our house and left. We had no idea whether we'd come back, when we'd come back, you know, what would happen to our farm and, and our house and everything that we'd known. We, had, we were just completely venturing into the darkness. Yeah, so much uncertainty. Man, um, it's unbelievable. You know, like, I, again, I know this, but just hearing you say it still um, is, is amazing. And so, you know, so you 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 leave Afghanistan, you you manage to cross the border um, into Pakistan, and I think there may have even been like I think your dad had to offer up a, a watch or something to get across to make it across the border. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So in the in the book, and we'll glaze over the details here. We've got to leave enough interest for people to go and actually buy the book. By the way, <laughs> but in the book, you know, I detail. The actual journey of, you know, over four days and four nights getting to the border crossing and, you know, there's Taliban gunmen left, right and center and the the absolute fear of having your heart right there in, in, in your throat, you know, just of uh, we're going to get caught or my dad's going to be pulled over or some gunman will, will, will pull us over and, you know, will leave us on the dead on the side of the road. All of that was just, you know, right there. And, you know, when I recall the story, um i'm i'm i remember it vividly but because i was so young i guess i'm shielded away from some of the the trauma because i had, didn't have the fuller context and understanding of what we were going through had i been going through this as a teenager or as a you know adolescent uh, i would have a much different understanding of it and perhaps you know i'd be coming in with a lot of baggage but i remember it but the beauty about it is that perhaps I didn't have the fuller understanding of, of why we were doing what we were doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, that's an amazing way to look at it. And maybe it was, um, you know, you just happened to be the an age, yeah, where you remember it, but not the not the emotional element that sort of went along with it. Um, and yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't want to steal you know, too much from the book, and we'll certainly get into that um, shortly. Um, and, and then obviously you make your way from Afghanistan and you end up in Indonesia. Yeah, that's right. So... We had become refugees. It was the first time I'd learned to the word. Um, you know, all those tent cities with the with the with the white UN logo on them that we see on TV, with with people queuing up for food. That was us. 
you know, that was us growing up uh, surrounded by thousands of other mostly Hazara Afghan refugees. We were now a name and number in amongst the statistics. And when you become a refugee, um, you know, you have certain rights embedded in international law. You know, if, if you and I would have become refugees now, if there was civil war to break out in New Zealand, you know, we had to seek uh, uh, asylum in Australia. We have the right to do that, by the way, and many people don't can't wrap their heads around it. Um, when you become a refugee, you you have kind of one of two choices in front of you, and that is to apply to the United Nations uh, High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, and tell them, look, this is my case, I've been forced from my home, this is my family, this is my background, you provide all the information that you have, and you hope that the UN system will work in your favour and that you might be able to be resettled in a safer country, uh, be it Canada, Australia, America, wherever that might be. Or you wait out in these refugee camps and you hope and pray that the situation in your home country will improve so that you can go back. You know, if we look at Syria right now, you know, 90% of the Syrian refugees are surrounded, uh, are living in the neighboring countries of Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon because they want to go back. But then there's, there's problems with both. You have no idea when or if the situation in your home country will improve. And you have no idea when or if the UN system will work in your favor. The average wait time, by the way, from application to, to potentially getting um, resettled, is about 12 to 15 years. So if you if you imagine, you know, mom and dad and five kids all under the age of 15, what do you do in that scenario, right? So naturally, you kind of look for a, a, another way out. And for us at that time, through whispers, through rumors, through chatting with other people in the refugee camp, uh, there was a third way. And that third way was to physically get yourself onto the shores of a foreign country and seek asylum that way. So that means, you know, picking up your family and getting yourself to arrive on the shores of a foreign country. And that, at that time, for us, that was Australia. We had heard that Australia had a pretty generous refugee policy, that anyone who could prove their case would have an honest hearing, and that once they had their applications heard, that they might be resettled in Australia or at least sent to a friendly country. And that's why after living in the refugee camp for months in Pakistan, we decided that, again, I use that word decision, um, you know, we thought that the best way for us was to get to Australia. And again, glazing over the details here, we might we make our way from Pakistan to Indonesia. And then from there, we engage with, I guess, people who operate in the shadows, right? Who, who engage in illicit activity to get you to Australia. And that included uh, getting on a boat and crossing the Indian Ocean to get to Christmas Island, which is an offshore Australian territory. Yeah, and um, gosh, even again, you know, a decision, but you say something like 12 to 15 years wait time and um, it's, it doesn't lead, it's not a decision really. You know, if you're a, you know, you're a parent and you're thinking like, all right, well, we've got, you, know, you the choice is our kids are going to spend the next 12 to 15 years growing up in a, a refugee camp with the idea that either you know our homeland might uh, improve or our country's um, you know um, sort of status may allow us to return or um, you know we wait for you know 12 to 15 years and we, we might get accepted through the official 
um, route and, and become, you know, seek asylum somewhere else. And so, yeah, right, there, there is no decision. So, um, you know, and, and that's where, um, you know, uh, again, your story is, is incredible because, um, I mean, I understand you, you, your family made the, used the decision in air quotes to, 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 to make their way to, um, you know, to Australia. So um, tell me about the, the, the boat journey because that's where your story is, um, is even more remarkable. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, I often get asked the bus, what do you remember the most about your journey? And while I remember most of it, uh, the, the boat, you know, jumping on that boat is is etched into my memory in, in high definition. We were living in an abandoned warehouse on the outskirts of Jakarta, and one night, middle of the night, we get a knock on the warehouse, you know, uh, and, and the people that we were engaging with said, tonight's the night, you know, a boat has been found. We all get bundled up into a minivan. And by the way, by now we had, uh, you know, joined together with a couple of dozen other uh, Hazara Afghan families who had thought Australia would be the way to go. And we all get bundled up into the back of this minivan, driven through the city, through the outskirts of the city, into the jungle, and finally by the shoreline. And it's pitch black, but you know you're at the you're at the shore because you can hear the crashing of the waves. And we get there, we get bundled out, and then the person points and says, that's it. And uh, that's it. What he meant by that was that little wooden rickety fishing boat that was wallowing in the waves was going to be the vessel that would take us to Australia. And obviously we didn't expect a, a fully serviced P&O cruise liner to take us through to Christmas Island, but we had higher expectations of something that was just a little bit more seaworthy. And people were angry, people felt like they'd been deceived, you know, parents were arguing amongst one another about how the hell they could find, get on this boat with all their kids. And, and writing that particular chapter in my book was probably the hardest because I really want readers to understand that impossible, um, that impossible uh, choice uh, that, that, that parents have to face. You know, here we are, you've made it all the way here to the shoreline. You've left your home, you've lived in refugee camps, you've given away all your life savings, you've engaged with the worst people known to man. And here you are on the shores about to jump or given the option to either get on board this boat that may or may not take you through to salvation or, you know, go back, say goodbye to your money and all that you've known and maybe end up homeless or begging on the streets of a foreign country like Indonesia. And, and getting that across to readers was super hard for me because none of us will ever have to contemplate that in our lifetimes, right? None of us here in Australia or New Zealand or listeners of this podcast will ever have to go through that that decision or have those two choices presented to them so you know after many hours of i guess deliberation and contemplating and back and forth the parents say look we've made it this far you know god's been with us on our side so far this is the final step and of course it's a slight sliver of a hope but we have to take it you know what other choice do we have and we pile on onto this boat you know climb the ladder and down the hatch and feels like we're being swallowed up into the belly of a beast. And, and, and soon enough, the boat gets moving. And as the sun rises, uh, you know, land disappears behind us. And now we are in the middle of the Indian ocean, no land in sight. And, and that was it. That was the beginning of our journey. And everyone was seasick. 
everyone was seasick. Keep in mind, we come from a landlocked country. For many people, this was the first time seeing the ocean. Everyone was seasick, but the mood was jubilant because people thought this was it. Just 48 hours more and would be in Christmas Island. All we have to do is just hunker down. And that lasted for all of half a day because naturally, almost tragically so, the, the engine cuts out. This thing was ancient. You know, it would all, the boat itself was, was unseaworthy, but the engine was almost from a bygone era. It'd been whipped to death and finally just gave up the ghost and, and completely fell off its mount. And so we were just wallowing in the, in the Indian Ocean with no engine power you know, about 12 or maybe 18 hours into our trip. And everyone starts ripping off beams and trying to paddle this thing to, to no avail. Uh, people try to fix the engine. I think there were a couple of mechanics on board with us. And, you know, there's no hope. We've got no radio equipment because we didn't want to be picked up by the authorities. And so we make it through that night. And the next day, we start to see some overcast clouds coming in. You know, and we can see a storm rolling in. And by the, later that evening, again, no engine power, this storm has really hit. And I remember that so distinctly, you know, seeing those clouds roll in, everyone trying to get ready for it. And by later that evening, again, in pitch black, we are like a, our little ship is like a bath toy at the mercy of a little child, right? We are just being rocked back and forth. You know, beams are splitting, you know, the decking's falling apart, holes are appearing on the side of the boat, you know, bodies and bags and human waste and seawater is just going back and forth inside the deck like we're in a we're in a blender. And I remember that so distinctly. And I remember the point where dad ripped off his belt, looped it around one of the rafters to create like a handhold. And just the absolute fear and I don't even know how to describe it. You know, I wrote a book trying to describe the emotions, but it's just so hard to get across the fact that not only the situation that we were in, but there's so many steps we had taken to get to this point of packing up our house, of living in squalid conditions in a refugee camp, of, of, of getting ourselves to this very point to what? To drown, right? To get that close and then to what? To, to all be taken away. And it was fear, it was anger, it was confusion, it was everything. People are praying, people are screaming, people are shouting. And the most powerful line in the book, and one of the lines that still stick with me is, you know, I interviewed uh, someone for, for, for in my book, I interviewed them, a, a fellow survivor, and he says that I had reached a point where I wasn't praying for salvation. I was praying to the, to the man above to say, oh, Lord, if we are to drown tonight, then let our bodies wash ashore so we can be buried on land. That was the level of desperation that people had reached. It wasn't, please rescue me. It was doing me this final favor so that my body can be found. That was it. And that lasted throughout the entire night. And, you know, I don't know what you want to call it. An act of God, mercy, sheer luck, whatever. You know, we survived. The storm rolled out. And we woke up the next morning. We didn't wake up, but the sun rose the next morning. And our little boat was still in one piece, bruised and battered. But we were all there. You know, if we said, if you're missing, put your hand up. And nobody did. 
So we were all in one piece. I think I think one thing I sort of um, is that the the boat was was immensely overcrowded, wasn't it? You know, like that's that's one thing that I I, I went listening to it and um, looking into your story is that it was you know almost ten times as many people on it than it should have been. That's right. That's right. This little boat was already ancient, um, but you know we the the human smugglers, right? These guys operate with you know profit over people, and so for them. To get as many bodies on board, it just you know meant more profits, right? And those are the kind of people that you're forced to deal with. Yeah, yeah. And so you wake up the next morning and uh, and you've survived the night. And then what happens next? Everyone's just kind of collecting themselves, trying to figure out what to do. We know we can't, you know, if another storm like that rolls past, we probably won't survive. So everyone's trying to figure out what to do, and and. Uh, 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 we hear the very distinct sound of a turboprop plane overhead. And this plane comes and does a few circles overhead. It's clearly seen us because it's circling overhead. And everyone's, you know, waving towels, holding up their children, screaming and shouting to say, you know, rescue us. And then it disappears. And we have no idea if it's seen us, if it's called out rescue or whatever. A couple of hours later, it comes back again. And in that time, someone on board the boat has a genius idea to write the letters SOS using engine oil and and uh, fabric and towels all put to get tied up together. And, and they write the letters SOS and help. And that did the trick because the, the turboprop, which was an Australian Coast Guard plane, couldn't ignore our plea for help. And so that around lunchtime it sends out the call for rescue saying you know all vessels near the area there's a vessel in distress uh please go and help and that call was received by a man named captain arnie renan arnie renan was uh the captain of the mv tampa a 260 meter long behemoth of a container ship uh, that was a pride and jewel of of the uh, norwegian wilhelmsen shipping line He'd grown up as a deckhand, as a 16-year-old, and now in his early 60s, Captain Renan, you know, 40 years at sea, salt water in his veins. Uh, you know, he knew the most honourable thing to do uh, was to, to obviously uh, reach out course and head out that way. And later that afternoon, a few hours after that turboprop disappeared, we see this small black dot on the horizon get closer and closer and closer. And it becomes this giant red metal wall that completely blocks out the horizon. And that's when we knew we'd been saved. Uh, two sailors, orange jumpsuits, climb down the, uh, the 12 flights of stairs, jump onto the, the deck of our ship and says, look, up you get. And we don't need to be told. Nobody can understand them, right? But we don't need to be told again. And, you know, one by one, we climb up this this giant container ship. From afar, we probably looked like a row of ants climbing up the, the leg of a giant red elephant. And we climb up and there's another sailor at the top who's writing a little number on our wrist to try and figure out how many people have been rescued. And the final number was 438. That's how many people had been crammed onto that boat. 433, uh, mostly Hazara Afghan asylum seekers, plus five uh, Indonesian crew members. And everyone was incredibly sick, injured, in need of medical attention. And the few that were healthy enough were just exhausted from the last 72 hours out at sea. Um, jubilant, you know, incredibly grateful for the rescue, but just in all sorts of states of 
jubilation to shock to you know realizing finally the the once the adrenaline of the previous night had passed away many of them were just in in hysterics um and i remember that distinctly as well climbing up this ladder leaning against one of the containers and just absolutely bawling my eyes out at what we had gone through the previous night and now having been rescued and so what do you think now so you you know you're on board the ship and you know it's sort of like you go from um you know, I don't want to say one hell to the next, but one one huge sort of challenge or obstacle to the next, and um, you think you've made it, and then you haven't made it, and then it's the last step, and then it breaks down, and then you're on this boat, and you realise that hey, well, I'm you know I'm not going to die today. Um, you know, what's the you know what do you think's happening when you're on the boat? When we're rescued by the Tampa, the immediate feeling is one of intense relief. You know, it's almost like an out-of-body experience because of the extremes of the previous night having gone through the storm. Um, but we're rescued and we think that's it. That's the end of our journey. There's no way this ship is going to go down in a storm. And surely it's been sent by the Australians to come and rescue us. So obviously we're going to be taken to Australia or, or wherever we are, maybe near Christmas Island, dropped off and we'll be on solid ground again. And how far from the truth uh, we were, because the Tampa had just become the epicenter of an international story. Essentially, what you had here was a Norwegian container ship that had picked up a boatload of mostly Afghan asylum seekers uh, between the international waters of Indonesia and Australia, headed towards Australia, where we were. Uh, and yet nobody wanted to take responsibility for us. We made our feelings known to the captain of the Tampa saying, look, look at what we've gone through, look at what we've left Afghanistan for, please drop us off at Christmas Island, which was only four hours away. And to and, uh, international maritime rules dictate that the captain of the rescuing vessel has to drop us off at the nearest port, which was Christmas Island, only four hours away. And so he's heading towards Christmas Island and the Australian government says, no, Australia is closed, take them elsewhere, take them to Indonesia, you know, 12 hours away. And so this becomes this incredibly, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, breaking, tragic story known as the Tampa Affair, where a boatload of asylum seekers, having just been rescued, um, were denied entry into Australia, denied their right to, us, to seek asylum. Um, and I dig into that and, you know, we can glaze over the details here in this podcast, but I dig into why that was in my book. But essentially, the Tampa had become this epicenter, the maelstrom in the middle of the 2001 Australian general election, where asylum seekers and irregular migration or boat people, as became the, the word, were uh, the, it wasn't prior to the Tampa, but through electioneering and through some pretty strategic uh, moves uh, by the Howard government became the epicenter of the 2001 Australian election. Yeah, yeah, it certainly did. And, and, and you're right, I, I, there's, there's probably a lot of detail in there. Um, but, you know, for the, I'm conscious of your time here, you know, like you, you obviously, um, you know, as, as a big picture, what happened from there? Yeah, so we were on the Tampa. All, you know, and we were doing circles around Christmas Island while 
negotiations were happening between Canberra and various other countries to what to do with us. Australia is very firm and adamant that we had no place in Australia, that we would never set foot in Australian soil. And so we, for days, uh, the, the Tampa was doing circle, circles around Christmas Island. And then in the middle of that, uh, New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark, who'd been watching this from Wellington, said, look, in a bid to break the stalemate, New Zealand would offer uh, refuge to 150 of those people that have been rescued and will prioritize those in family units, you know, men, women, and children, and um, those uh, underage kids who are traveling alone, which equated to about 130 something. And that was a turning point in my life. We stayed on the Tampa. Once we, re we received that news that we'd be resettled to New Zealand. Uh, and the first question that someone asked was, who's New Zealand? You know, we had no idea who this country was, where it was. But once we were told that it's a foreign country, you know, right there, there it is on a map. People just said, take us anywhere that's dry land. And that was the turning point in my life. You know, we were transferred to an Australian Navy ship. It took us to Nauru, which is an island in the Pacific. And an Air New Zealand charter plane picked us up. And I arrived to New Zealand at Auckland Airport. I think it was September 27th or 28th, somewhere in the middle of the night. 2001. Keep in mind, and I've missed over this incredible piece of detail, 9-11 mm. happened while we were on the Tampa. Yeah, that's right, we spent, yeah. from the moment that we jumped on that first wooden boat in August 24th to the moment we landed in, in Auckland, you know, we spent 35 days at sea, five weeks at sea. 9-11 had just happened and we were in the post 9-11 world. And so all of these things took place. We took place and we arrived to New Zealand and it was the most incredible, incredible feeling to touch down on New Zealand soil, not knowing what the hell the future held for us, although that's a running theme of my entire story, but just absolutely grateful that we had been given a second home. I can imagine, and like, well, I can't imagine if I'm honest, you know, that's 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 probably the the, the main thing is that it seems the most... You know, and again, as you said before, you know, myself and, and most people listening to this will, will find it very hard to comprehend the, you know, what that's even like. And, um, you know, to, I can't even imagine the, the joy of finding out that after all this time and all this effort and all this energy and you've almost you know, you've given all your cards up, you've got nothing left, all your, you know, you've thrown everything in, you know, in, in one basket and and finding out on that boat that, um, you know, you've been accepted into New Zealand, whatever our New Zealand is, but, you know, you've been accepted there and, um, you know, you make that journey over those next few days and you end up in, in Auckland and I understand you sort of, um, you spent a couple of months in Auckland um, in sort of a, um, you know, a South Auckland the sort Mangere, of... Yeah, that's right. There's a there's a government-run facility there called the Mangere Refugee Resettlement Centre, almost like a MIQ facility just for <laughs> refugees, you know, to get, you know, tested and screened and tagged and given all the numbers you need to, to, to thrive. You know, I learned my ABCs at the little school in Mangere and um, having not spoken a word of English, you know, and... We saw we were given a beautiful welcome with all, you know, the, the most amount of food I'd ever seen in my life laid out on these tables for us. And it was the most incredibly gracious welcome to Aotearoa New Zealand for all of us. And we stayed there for, I think, about six to eight weeks before we were resettled throughout New Zealand, you know, wherever state housing was available for us. 
And for, for, for me and my family and probably half a dozen other Tampa families, that was Christchurch. You know, so we arrived to Christchurch uh, two months later, just before Christmas 2001. And life for us began right there, you know, Upper Rickett and Christchurch. I still remember the state house with its white picket fence, you know, and three-bed classic 1960s state house. And, you know, just to go, it, it, was, it, never, it was never lost on me and especially my parents, the journey that we had gone. You know, by then, by Christmas 2001, we had been on the road for close to nine months you know, from leaving our house to living in refugee camps to being out at sea to finally arriving in Christchurch. It was the most tiring, most beautiful, most challenging thing we, we will, had ever done and probably ever will, get, will, will do. And life for us began, you know, we were enrolled in, in Upper Rickerton Primary School and, you know, quickly learned English. We were in the ESOL program for a couple of terms and I was always the nerd, so I, you know, I, I tested out of ESOL within a couple of months and went mainstream, and so did my siblings. And look, we just got stuck into it, man. Uh, just enrolled at the local footy club and made friends with all the other kids in our neighborhood and all our classmates. And uh, writing that chapter in my book, you know, I called it the the Kiwi Dream. That was my most, most amazing experience to recall and and think about what we'd gone through to make friends, to learn the language, to really integrate into society and thrive in our new homeland, uh, that was incredible. And it's, it's, um, it's something that has been the foundation for our life, you know, and it's been 20 years since our arrival to New Zealand. Yeah, again, it's hard to fathom, but, um, you know, Upper Rickerton must seem like a different world from the, the village you described in the Afghani mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to arrive, you know, Ballantyne Ave, uh, by the way, you know, one of my neighbours was a bloke named Richie Moonga, who's, uh, I think a few people might know, right? Uh, I taught him how to play well. rugby. He, yeah, I taught him how to play rugby and look where he's ended up. Um, <laughs> hopefully he doesn't listen to this thing, send me a message. But look, we, you know, the tree-lined Ballantyne Avenue is a world away from this little mountainous village in Afghanistan. We had hesitations, right? We thought, look, we're the, are, are we going to be welcomed? What are we going to look like? Are people going to stare? We, we don't know the language. We don't know anyone. All of those natural trepidations that people have, right? But we didn't have to worry because Rickerton's a pretty working-class neighbourhood. Uh, we had a huge Pacific Island community in that area and, and, a, and a lot of other brown boys, so we never felt like we, were, we stuck out. Um, we were welcomed. You know, when, when you're a little kid, you, 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 you soak everything up like a sponge, right? So we picked up the language and picked up the culture and the customs and it was tough. It was very, very tough in the beginning, but our, our learning trajectory was so fast and so quick that we never really had time to, to absorb it all because we'd be moving on to the next thing. Um, so it's been an incredible journey in the last 20 years has, you know, it's gone by in a flash, but, you know, something I really want listeners of this podcast and readers of my book to understand is that a lot of folks like myself and my family and the Tampa families, they were rescued and given a chance to live in New Zealand. Look, we, we were very, very reliant and dependent and, and we leaned heavily on organizations and the government to help us. Didn't know the language, didn't have an income, didn't have a financial base, didn't know anything. We were welfare dependent. We lived in state housing. We, you know, everything we, we were like children needing to, to be spoon fed every step of the way. 
But within a couple of years, once we finally learned to stand on our own two feet, the journey has been incredible. So, and I detail that in my book, you know, many people just picked up the trades and became tilers and builders and plumbers and bus drivers and all the rest of it. And so, you know, one of the silver linings to the devastating Canterbury earthquakes was that by then many of them were qualified tradespeople with their own businesses. And, you know, the, the post-earthquake recovery was an incredible boom time for many of the Tampa families. Uh, for myself personally, you know, went to Burnside High School, went to University of Canterbury, and our trajectory has been just as good. So there's, we disappeared. The Tampa was hot for a couple of weeks and we were given life in New Zealand and people wondered, whatever happened to those people? What's the refugee experience like? And now, you know, to be able to share my story, both in the book and this podcast and many speaking gigs which come my way, uh, the resounding kind of answer is that we were given a chance to build a new life for ourselves in New Zealand. And we took that chance uh, with both hands. You know, my favorite quote in the book is that from my dad, you know, he says, life is like a charging bull and it's going to come charging straight at you. And it's up to you whether you're ready or not, whether you're prepared or not to either step aside because you feel that it's scary, that it's a wave that's coming at you and you don't know how to swim. It's up to you to whether you want to step aside or whether you grab it with both hands. You grab it by the horns with both hands and, you know, you learn to wrestle with the ball. And that's exactly what we did. We had no preparation, no foundation, didn't even speak the language. And yet life was coming at us like a charging ball and we just learned to wrestle with it. And that's kind of been the central theme of my life, my family, and obviously the, the other Tampa families that have been given a chance at life in New Zealand. Yeah, and you know you 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 know you, you glazed over a few things there. But, you know, I know that you know you called yourself a nerd, but you you know you did really well in school, and obviously went to university, and then you got um, became a Fulbright scholar, which meant you got to go to um, the United States and study in America. And um, you know, I think that you sort of you know are very humble in how you talk about yourself, but you've also um, you know done some incredible things since and I think that listening to your story is is it's a huge dose of perspective you know I think that um we often get caught up in things that are in front of us you know and, and what's going on and at the moment you know you can look around and there's there's so many our world is is so volatile and it's changing so quickly but it's not life or death and it's not That's right. uprooted from your home and it's not making this, the decision to put your entire family onto a rickety old fishing boat run by human smugglers and and uh, you know and, and risk your your life in that sense it's a um, and and I think that listening to you and hearing your story and knowing your story um, should help everyone sort of recognize that not, not that things can be worse but that you know the the problems that we're dealing with are, you know, if, if this is passed for you, then whatever people are dealing with now can pass for them as well. And I think, um, you know, especially how you know far you and certainly you, but you know your family and, and others have, have come out as well, is that, um, you know, the 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 impact that you have now is incredible, and the way you share your story is remarkable, and it's beautifully articulated, even the way you speak. And um, you know, I think that it's a it's a tool now to help everyone, give everyone a bit of perspective on, on life, and and indeed the challenges that um, that we're all encountering and on our on our sort of day to day lives. Do you? Um, 
do you still worry about stupid things? Was is, is, is how I'm trying to frame <laughs> that question. I mean, you know, like no, I, I get your point, man, and and you've hit the nail on the head there with that word perspective. I feel like. In our day-to-day lives, we lose perspective because uh, I think, and I'm not to trivialize or, or, or bring down people's experiences, but we we lose perspective of the, the greater picture. And every now and then, uh, we just need to take a step back and realize this is one minuscule little challenge or problem in front of me, and the bigger picture remains the bigger picture. And so when people hear my story, the number one feedback I get is, wow, I had no idea. And that perhaps maybe I do need to realize that my problems aren't all that big. Now, that's not to say that everybody needs to go through my adventure. You know, I call it an adventure or my journey to have that. It doesn't mean that everyone needs to go and live and grow up in a developing country to realize how blessed they are. But now, every now and then people do need a little bit of a wake up call to realize, all right, I have it pretty damn good. Um, so that's that. I I generally, I think one of the biggest strengths and the biggest takeaway from the journey that I've been on is that that sense of perspective. So even when I'm getting wound up about something, whether it's academic or business related or relationship related, whatever, I always try to take a a few deep breaths and step back and realize, all right, this this is how big this little problem is in relation to the bigger picture. And so it's given me this incredible... Uh, ability to see the 360, to step back, to to zoom out every now and then, and uh, it's been incredibly helpful. And I think you can apply that in every area of life. Um, I guess my final words on this is that for me, everyone's going to go through something. Right now, listeners of this podcast have a range of issues that are top of their mind, whether it's their health, whether it's their finances, whether it's their relationships, business decisions, whatever. For me, the biggest challenge that life threw at me at a pretty young age was forces outside our control. Uh, You know, the Taliban took over our country and said, you guys aren't welcome here and you might get killed. For many listeners, they might have had a pretty adverse health uh, diagnosis or they might be in financial distress or their relationships falling apart, whatever. Forces outside your control. So the, the only thing you can do there is that if you realize that this thing is outside my control, the only thing I can do is focus on those things that are within my control. How am I going to react to this? How am I going to plan a way out even if it's complete darkness around me? And so once you start thinking like that, then you'll be able to start solving those little problems. And so that is kind of my takeaway of my entire refugee journey. Uh, and, and I hope that le- readers of my book and listeners of this podcast, I uh, guess, remember that when they're going through the challenges that life comes at them. Habas, that's amazing. Control the controllables. That's the, the fundamental concept of stoicism. And, you know, it's um, there's a beautiful equation, which is E plus R equals O. It's the event plus your response equals the outcome. And uh, the event, if it's in the past, you can't change it. And if you want to affect the outcome, the only variable left is the, your response. And um, the way you've articulated that, again, is uh, is incredible. Hey, you've got this book out. Um, tell us After about the, the book. And, after the temper, tell us about the book. Tell us where we can get it. How can we learn more about your story? Thank you. So this book came out in August last year uh, on the 20th anniversary of our rescue, uh, August 2021, dating back to August 2001. After the temper from Afghanistan to New Zealand, 
uh, available at every major bookstore, uh, small, big, large, independent, uh, throughout Australia and New Zealand. Um, so, you know, if people want to read some of those areas of my journey that I've kind of glazed over, then please have a read. Oh, mate. Um, I will, I'm incredibly appreciative of your time. I, um, you know, your story is amazing. Um, you know, the, the book just as much so, and, and I couldn't recommend to anyone enough to go and uh, go and pick it up. So, Abbas, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for also, you know, for the way you share your story. You know, it's uh, it takes an incredible person to go through what you've done, um, but then even um, to then sit down and go, right, I think I've got some messages and stories that can benefit other people and to spend time writing and talking and sharing those ideas to, um, you know, help other people. I, I certainly don't, um, you know, I, I understand that your impact will be vast and wide from what you're doing. So well done on what you're doing and I, I can't wait to to, to watch as, uh, as you continue on through and I look forward to what's next for you. Thank you so much, Maddie. And like I said, if there's one thing people take away from this podcast, it's it's that it's that that one one line, one sentence saying, you know, it's time to wrestle the ball. Cheers, guys. And there we go, Abbas Nazari. Wow, what an amazing guy! What an amazing story! I think listening to that and, and having that conversation just gives you a, a whole new sort of perspective on the world and, and a lens to to sort of see your life through. It's a um, yeah, an amazing story. And obviously, thank you so much to Abbas for his time and and for sharing his story so openly. And of course, thank you to you as well for checking out the Road to the Success podcast. You know, getting to have these conversations with people like Abbas and meet someone like Abbas is is um, you know is just incredible. I love doing it, and I only get to do it because people like you listen to the podcast so thank you so much and and if you did enjoy the podcast today if you could do one of three things firstly would be to to follow the podcast whichever platform you get your podcast on just hit follow the second thing would be to rate it you'll see a wee star rating there just hit rate and please leave a review it really helps me and, and again it would mean the world to me and the last thing you could do would be to share the episode. Again, wherever you listen to your podcast, just hit the share button and send it to someone that you think might enjoy this episode. Again, it just means the world to me if you do that because it really helps the podcast grow. And when the podcast grow, I get to have more conversations. So thank you so much. And of course, thank you so much to Celebrity Speakers uh, who are a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. And um Again, you can find them at celebritiespeakers.co.nz. They are Aotearoa's foremost professional speakers and entertainment agency. So if you're looking for a speaker, including a bus, for your next event, then just head to celebritiespeakers.co.nz. Until then, thank you so much for checking out the Road to Success podcast. Thank you to a bus. I love you all. Take care. Talk soon. Bye.